Today we are talking with Jennifer Otrumpa, who, in her own words, accidentaled her way into data. And she is just one of the many wonderful examples about how the road to data is not straight, and certainly there is no single way to become a data professional. And her diverse background is a huge benefit to the approach and gifts that she gives to the nonprofit data space. She uses a wonderful and delicious analogy today about chocolate chip cookies to help us simplify how we think about the processes and components that need to come into our data when we're trying to build out what we should be collecting and measuring. So please join us today if you want to learn about how you can break down all of the operations of your organization into easy to measure steps that build up to give you critical, actionable information. And you may want a cookie and a glass of milk because we talk about cookies and it certainly made me hungry for some. Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, where we explore the human side of analytics to help amplify the impacts of those out to change the world. With me, Alexandra Mannering. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jennifer. It's always a pleasure to meet up with another fellow data geek. And I love that actually your organization is even called that. It just warms my heart. So I'd love if you could start by introducing yourself and how you came to data. Sure. Uh, my name is Jennifer Otremba, and I am the founder and lead Salesforce consultant at Nonprofit Data Geeks. And I like to say I accidentaled my way into data. So uh, I started working in the direct service sector. So I worked as a program director for a number of years at a youth serving nonprofit. And while I was there, we became Salesforce users. And I guess you would say I became enough of a Salesforce super user that when the organization was becoming a 501c3, I naively volunteered myself to migrate our entire donor database from Razor's Edge to Salesforce. But, you know, I said I would do it, so I did it. I figured it out, migrated all the data, and learned a ton about Salesforce along the way. And shortly thereafter, the organization just really loved what appeared to be possible in Salesforce. And so I was sort of tasked with building out the system to track a lot of additional data. So kind of everything aligned with the logic model that was needed for grant applications and reports. So we started tracking all of our constituent data in there. And really it became the source of truth both for program side data as well as development and fundraising. So that's how I sort of uh, got into it. And then um, I like to say I accidentaled my way into consulting when other nonprofits kind of heard what I was up to and started asking questions and asking for help with their organizational data as well. And so now, presently, I work with a couple dozen organizations at any given time, anything from sort of blank slate Salesforce implementations, folks who've never used it, are excited to try it out, to organizations that have used it for a while, but just know that it, it should be easier to use than, than they're experiencing. And then I kind of help them try to find ways to make it work better for their organization. I love that. I accidentaled my way into data. And I really think it's important for people to hear that this can happen. I think sometimes it's assumed that either you're a numbers person or you're not. And somehow that's written on your forehead when you're born. But really, this is a learned skill. And if you didn't have it to start with, you can learn it and find your way, whether whether intentionally or unintentionally, to being able to, to do that kind of work. I'm curious how your direct service experience has informed your approaches around data. Do you find that it gave you a bit of a unique perspective 
compared to other people who may have come more directly into data? Yeah, it has definitely informed my approach to data. And I think it helps me be realistic about what's possible. Having worked with students, with families, sort of running all the logistics of day-to-day programming, I understand that data is often not top of mind, you know, for folks who are in those roles because they're focused on a million other very important things. And so when I'm working with clients, I really try to focus on how we can keep it as simple as possible while achieving their objectives. So yes, organizations need to apply for grants. They need to report for grants. So we do need to collect data, but try to keep it as simple as possible and make sure we're not, you know, burning lots of people's time trying to enter data that isn't ultimately used for anything externally or internally, just keeping it as simple as possible. For frontline folks, that must be a breath of fresh air with this idea of, wait, someone's designing a data collection system with us in mind? Like, thank you. That's that's the goal. (laughs) No, and it's true. And it can be hard living in those different places, right? If you're really spending time with the data and you're focused on, well, think of all the things we could do with this data it's easy to value the collection of the data more highly versus if you're the one who's having to do data entry in addition to your actual job and all the real quote unquote things you need to do, right? Then you're saying, no, make this as minimal as possible. Please make this as easy as you can so that I can actually go and do all of the other things that I really have to do. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned a couple of things, you know, as you worked on Salesforce and developed it into um, the source of truth. And this is a phrase we in the data space use all the time. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what do we mean by source of truth and why is it so important? Yeah, I mean, tangibly at most nonprofits, it means you're not chasing down 10 different spreadsheets when it's time to write a grant report and then only to find that those spreadsheets differ. (laughs) You know, oh, this one from 2020 says this. And then this one from 2021 has a bunch of different columns and says this and You know, so having a single source of truth really means that you have one place you can go to that you know has up-to-date, reliable information so that when you're doing a grant report, you know that you're reporting out on the accurate number of, you know, constituents served or the, the accurate demographics of the folks who are involved in your programming. Because otherwise, if you've got some data in spreadsheets, some data in desktop, you've got some data in some other database, you know, you can just end up chasing it down, spending far more hours completing these grant reports than than is needed if you have a more centralized system. Right. So the source of truth is, one, that it's actually a single point of contact. So from that, that idea of a virtual geography, it's all living in one place. The second part is that it's accurate. So it's not missing piece, pieces, it's not incomplete, it doesn't have, you know, the last month's data, and so therefore, you know, it's reporting out incorrectly. And I think third, the other part as well as you were talking about, you know, spreadsheets from four years ago having different columns and different headers and different things in it than the spreadsheets we have now, that there's also just a part of some of data isn't necessarily the right or wrong, it's a judgment call we make about how do we d- want to define this thing? So how are we defining clients served. That's a general phrase. And we might have to come up with, all right, is it that they came to one of our programs? Is it that they just completed any of our forms or accessed any of our resources? You know, how are we defining that? And so that source of truth means you have one place where there is a consistent definition for all of the things that matter that you're trying to measure and that that definition isn't changing in this place and not over in this place. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, very well stated. <laughs> so yeah, I think that source of truth concept is so important. 
and it can be overlooked or it can be given up because it feels so overwhelming, right? I can't ever have that. So I love that you help support organizations to get to that point of that source of truth. Now, the second phrase that you mentioned, which is where we're going to spend most of our conversation today, is this idea of a logic model of your data. So could you talk a little bit about what do you mean by logic model? Yeah, absolutely. Well, logic model is a term that I learned it in grad school. I hadn't heard of it before that. Once I started working with more nonprofit organizations, I found that thankfully it's a well-known term. A lot of organizations leverage these tools. Really, a logic model is essentially a roadmap for what you're doing in your organization, what activities you're offering, what your expected outputs and outcomes are. And we can talk about a fun analogy for that in a moment. But the reason it's so important when you're developing a database is, like I mentioned before, we try to keep the data collection as simple as possible in order to know what those key metrics are that need to be tracked. A logic model is so helpful to really say, okay, well, here's what we need to track about who we're serving and what the outputs and outcomes are from those activities. And so it's really a roadmap for what needs to be tracked. I find that's one of the most common misconceptions or mistakes when organizations start to move towards a more sophisticated approach with data is that they start with the question, okay, what data do we need? And actually, you have to say, start with the question of who are we and what do we do? And that tells you then what data you need. And I think that sometimes that gets missed. So let's get into your fun analogy. (laughs) Yes. Well, first, I can't take credit for this analogy. I know it's been used elsewhere. I'm not sure who first came up with it, but it's a great analogy. So I use it all the time when I'm explaining what a logic model is. And so the analogy I like to use is chocolate chip cookies. So baking chocolate chip cookies. So when you're first baking chocolate chip cookies, you've got your recipe. So you've got all your ingredients you need to throw in the bowl. You've got your chocolate chips, your butter, your sugar. And so these ingredients are analogous to the participants, the inputs that you're using. So in a logic model, there'll typically be a column for inputs. So inputs are, you know, the constituents you're trying to serve, partner organizations if you have them, you know, facilities, you're just kind of everything all the ingredients that go into your organization are the inputs. So the chocolate chips, the butter, all that good stuff goes into the bowl. And then the next column in a logic model is typically activities. And so when you're making chocolate chip cookies, you got to mix it together. Sometimes you're using a blender, you know, whatever it is you're doing to prepare the dough. So those would be the activities in your organization. So activities typically would be, so if you're like an after-school program, your activities would be your after-school programming you know, what hours you're meeting, sort of programming you're doing with the individuals who are attending those programs. And so those would be your activities. So you've got your inputs, which then turn into your activities. And then the next part of making the chocolate chip cookies is you put them in the oven to bake them. And so while they're in the oven baking, and they're kind of going through this process, you're thinking about what's going to come out at the end when you take out the cookies. And a lot of folks, when they first start learning about logic models, there's a lot of confusion around outputs versus outcomes. And this is where the chocolate chip cookie analogy really comes in handy. Because when you pull those cookies out of the oven, your outputs, for instance, are the number of cookies you baked. So how many cookies did you bake? How many cookies are on the cookie sheet when you're done? Versus an outcome, how good do they taste? (laughs) How yummy are those cookies? Are they burnt or are they just just the right amount of chewiness. And so at an organization, outputs are just sort of like those counts or those numbers, like how many kids did we serve? How many families did we serve? How many hours of dosage did our participants receive? 
you know, how many meals did we distribute, you know, whatever it is that uh, your program does through your inputs and activities, you're essentially counting your outputs, just like you count the number of chocolate chip cookies. Now, your outcomes tell you more about the impact of the work you've done. And outcomes can be sort of short-term, medium-term, or long-term. And organizations that do kind of a full-fledged logic model will often have those distinguished, you know, short-term outcomes, medium-term outcomes, and long-term outcomes. The outcomes are ultimately, what difference did you make? In the work of nonprofits, everybody's trying to make the world a better place, right? So, you know, did you succeed in doing that? Did you make a difference for the folks who are involved in your programming? And so those outcomes can vary widely depending on what your organization is, who you are, and what you're striving to do. But it could be things like, um, you know, for example, if you're a, a college access program, an example of an outcome might be how many of the students who went through your program were admitted to a college, how many completed college within four years. You know, those would be examples of outcomes. Some outcomes might be more qualitative, like survey results. You know, how many participants said they would recommend your program to a friend or how many participants said that they will return to your program again for future uh, activities. So outcomes can, can vary widely depending on what it is you want to be able to show you've done. And outcomes are really critical and really important for grant applications to be able to say not just how many people you served, but what difference did you make? You know, what was the ultimate impact as a result of the, all of those inputs and activities? In your organization. I like to talk with nonprofits about how the outcome is why you exist. Yes. Right. And I think it's easy to forget that, you know, if you ask, say, like an organization that serves children after school, like, why do you exist? You know, they get so caught up in, well, you know, we had this many kids in our after school program. It's like, well, yes, that's what you do, but you don't exist just to do that. You exist to make sure that those children thrive. Yes, absolutely. And if the way our community is run changes, you could still exist to help them thrive. You might just express it in a new way, right? Maybe it wouldn't be after school programs. It would end up being like school enrichment programs or weekend programs or family visits or something like that. I think this model is really helpful to break down in a really concrete way where it makes it easy for an organization to maybe take all of this stuff that's happening, all these partners and people and activities and all this stuff and put it in in an order that they can really see. So once they get there and they have this logic model, they understand how they make chocolate chip cookies and why they make those chocolate chip cookies. How does this connect then to building a data model? (laughs) Yeah, great question. So I love when I'm working with an organization and they already have a logic model, but if they don't, even if they don't formally want to build a logic model, we end up going through a lot of the same steps and a lot of the same questions. Because I heard a sort of a comment one time from another consultant that when you're building out a Salesforce database, it requires a million micro decisions that you maybe weren't forced to make before. When everyone was living in different spreadsheets, everyone could have their own drop down values they wanted to pick from. They could have their own way of categorizing their data. Well, when you're trying to move everyone into a single source of truth, you do have to define those things that perhaps you didn't have to define before. And so the logic model can be very helpful because number one, it gives you a roadmap for what you're building towards. So a lot of times when I start working with an organization, if they have a logic model or if they don't, I sort of say at the end of the day, what's your dream dashboard? What set of charts do you want to look at on a regular basis that would make it fast and easy for you to fill out that grant report? So for some organizations, it might be like, number of active participants, you know, demographics of those active participants, retention of those participants, 
survey results, things like that. So that all informs basically what our end goal is. And then we kind of go backwards from there. Okay, if that's our end goal and that's how we want to see the data, now how do we build out the system? So what custom fields do we need? What pick list values do we need within those custom fields? What sort of objects might we need to collect additional information if it doesn't exist out of the box and so on? That's what allows us to see how we build to that end goal. And the logic model or a similar conversation like a logic model really helps inform those steps. The idea here being with all those micro decisions, they can be quickly overwhelming or in some ways, not even just overwhelming, but how do I pick? Like, okay, you gave me this option of different items I could put on this list. If I don't have the logic model, those options are going to feel equivalent. I don't know which one would I pick, but if you can consult this logic model and say, oh, this is, this is how we do things. This is what matters to us. Then when I look at those options, there'll be one that stands out because it matches my logic model. Yep, absolutely. So with this idea of kind of mapping our data to our logic model, how do you help sort of the culture manage, though, that there's going to be things you're not capturing? Like, do you ever have hard conversations about the stuff that either didn't make it into the model or, or isn't an exact fit for this mapping across the model? Yeah, that happens all the time. And what I really, I use the term data hoarding <laughs> with uh, organizations sometimes. So to the end of trying to keep things as simple as possible, I really encourage organizations that, yes, that would be interesting data to have, but what will you use it for? It's just like the all the stuff in your closet, right? Like, oh yeah, that's a nice object, but what am I going to use it for? If I haven't touched it in a year, do I really need to hang on to it? And so there's sort of that similar mentality where just helping organizations let go of the fact that they don't have to track, tracking what's meaningful tracking what's actionable. And, and that might mean, I mean, a lot of organizations track things beyond what they're reporting for grants. So for instance, they might be tracking some information internally that's helpful for them to know internally, how are they changing their, you know, approach to a Saturday program, you know, and what have you. But I, a lot of times, once you sort of talk about it in that way, where, you know, by just collecting all of this data that doesn't have a meaningful purpose in terms of your logic model or in terms of grant reports, it is just eating time that staff could be spending doing other things, um, both the collection of it, the maintenance of it, you know, and so on. And and if it's just going to sit in a file somewhere and not be used, then it, it, you know, it's not serving its purpose at that point. Right. So you should be able to draw a pretty direct line between any given data element and some sort of final activity or need for the data in order for it to make it into this model, whether it's for reporting for grants or whether it's strategic planning or whether it's for evaluation and review, you know, whatever the purpose is, it should have a defined purpose in order to make it in. Yep, absolutely. And in one of the things uh, I help organizations with, if they're sort of at the, it, at that point where there's just like a lot of data floating around and they don't know what to do, we do actually start putting that in writing, you know, okay, what survey is being collected? Who's collecting it? What is it being used for? You know, how is it being presented and so on? Because then it'll kind of boil to the surface, the things that aren't necessary and aren't currently being used for any purpose and just fucking time. From your experience, you know, you've worked with dozens and dozens of different nonprofits. How hard is it to come back later and add something if you weren't using it before? And then let's say down the road, you create a new initiative or you're applying for a new grant or you develop a new strategy and you realize you need a piece of information. 
Do you find that it's difficult to adjust a data model once you've deployed it? It totally depends on what it is that would be added. So for example, let's say you're just collecting an additional piece of information about your constituents. Maybe you're collecting their income range and you didn't collect that before. That's, you know, from on the technical side in Salesforce, it's very easy to add a field. I think the questions that often come up are, okay, how far back do we want to go to collect this data? So some organizations, if they're serving, uh, you know, per- participants for a long time, like if it's a four-year, six-year program, you might think, okay, well, maybe I should go back and collect some of this data for folks who are still involved, but we weren't collecting it at the time they applied, perhaps. So that's always a conversation. But there are other things that can be much more substantial, like if there's a fundamental shift in how you're surveying your constituents about their experience, and especially if you're doing longitudinal surveys, like let's say you're a multi-year program and you do this survey year one, this one year two, this one year three, um, and you suddenly decide, well, we're going to change those 10 questions and we're going to do these other eight questions instead. Well, that has more far-reaching consequences because, number one, you can't compare your data in a longitudinal way anymore if you change the tool that you're using. And then, number two, it does have a bigger impact on your system because you have to change more in your system when that shift happens. And then you sort of have to make it clear, you know, what's the archive data, what's the old process, what's the new process. So in particular with surveys, you know, surveys are something that I think we all like, oh, just survey, 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 you know, get feedback, which is great if you're using it for something. And so especially if I'm working with an organization that wants to put survey data in Salesforce, I'll push them really hard to, number one, limit the number of questions. Number two, feel very married to those questions at the point we build it to say like, you know, are these questions you see yourself asking for at least the next few years? Um, And if the answer is no, I just want to know it for the next few months. And I usually say, well, maybe that doesn't belong in Salesforce just yet until you decide it's more of a long-term tool that you want to use to collect data from your participants. Because otherwise you can just end up with a lot of data clutter and a lot of technical debt. You sort of like throw in a new field every time there's a new survey question, all of a sudden things become really unwieldy. I like that idea of viewing your relationship with surveys that you're storing as like a long-term relationship. This is not a one-night stand. <laughs> you, are, you are making a commitment here. <laughs> yeah. Because it is true. If you've gone, yes. if you've made the request to somebody to fill out survey data that you're going to keep and associate either with a profile or in some way you want to use this over any length of time, you do really want to say, I'm going to collect it the same way every time. Otherwise, there's there's no ability to compare it over years. Or if you're going to use it to categorize mm-hmm. people, you want to make sure that every new person is asked it in the same way. So they get categorized in, in the same way. Um, versus, you know, like you're saying, if it's it's just this one off, you're going to ask them something, you're going to use that piece of information, you're never going to touch it again. That can be sort of treated in a different way, a much more one off, not becoming part of our record of truth, so to speak. Yeah. And we also end up having some interesting conversations about survey methodologies, usually, you know, like folks, I often end up teaching folks what a Likert scale is if they don't know that already. Uh, you know, sort of talking about the difference between qualitative and quantitative data and sort of asking someone a question sort of in a single drop down versus a multi-select, you know, there's all these sort of decisions that get made along the way that do impact how you can report on the data. And so that's why I always kind of start with the end. What do you want to be able to report on on the end? Because that could impact how you choose to ask a question in your tool that you're using. I did a, I have a previous episode with Dr. Kristen Williams, who is a survey expert. And she talks about that, about how 
we'll so often just throw questions together and not really think about how we're going to collect garbage data with garbage questions and that there is a science to asking good, effective survey questions that are going to get you data that you need. So 100% agree with that like need for good survey writing. Yep. So I always like to end with a, a question about what can organizations and, and our listeners now do that are going to help them sort of move towards this source of truth move towards this data model that is directed and influenced and guided by the logic model of their whole organization, the reason for their organization's being. So they may not be at a point where they can just do a full-scale Salesforce implementation or anything like that. So what are some small steps that we can start to take? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing is somebody has to have dedicated time for it. Um, I think at a lot of organizations, it's just one of those tasks that's not explicitly on anyone's job description. And it just sort of falls onto everyone's job description as a result. And that can be really problematic because in direct service, folks are very, very busy. And so if there isn't someone who's sort of the captain of data within an organization, it can be very difficult to sort of come to be aligned with best practices, you know, to have a a logic model, to have all of your pieces of data you're collecting, whether it's in Excel or whether it's in some other database, Um, It can still be very well done. You know, you can still be collecting it in a meaningful way and aligned with your data processes. But it sort of takes having somebody be the captain of the ship to sort of rally everybody around an approach that's thoughtful and sustainable. Because otherwise, you can just end up in a situation where, as you've got staff turnover, everybody uses a different spreadsheet, and then it's all just hiding in folders somewhere on the file system and, and can't be looked at later to provide any real meaning in that way. So that's the number one thing. The other thing I would say is if organizations don't have a logic model, you know, plan a staff retreat, just a one day staff retreat, you know, answer the question like the way, you know, the way you asked it before, who are we, what are we doing and what are we trying to do? Um, You know, have those conversations and really just start penciling things into a logic model if one doesn't exist, because once that happens, it can really increase efficiency in so many ways, because one of the hardest things that an organization for the folks who are writing grants is they write a grant, they promise these outcomes, the grant report comes due, they go back to the program staff, maybe there's been staff turnover, maybe there was a breakdown in communication when the grant was originally written, and the program staff go, wait, what? We were supposed to be collecting that on applications or on surveys, and then the grant team doesn't have the data they need to report on. So getting everybody around the table to come to some sort of agreement on what the logic model looks like or what those key performance indicators are can get everybody on the same page and just make everyone's work more efficient. And that's a good point I hadn't thought about earlier is that you'll have an organizational logic model, but then you'll likely have sort of sub logic models for each of your major activities. So when you talk about those activities in there, if it's a particular program, to some extent, there's sort of a mini logic model for that. And it should align, like you said, if the grant has requirements or if you've promised a particular outcome, then that logic model needs to feed to that. And so, like you said, making sure you carve out time, not just for the the whole organization, but also within each of the obligations that you've made, whether to a funder or to somebody else for the programs and outcomes that you're responsible for. I also wanted to go back to that idea of the captain of data. I love that idea that like there should be someone who gets to put that hat on and, and Extra points if it's actually a captain's hat, because that would be awesome. But that someone's the captain of data, but it doesn't necessarily have to be their full-time role, but they need to have that assigned. It needs to be an explicit role that is 
given time so that someone understands, all right, if I'm two roles, I'm doing 90% of my time in this role and 10% of my time to captain of data. And I think it's great that this is coming from you because you can show maybe this isn't who you started as, right? Maybe you're coming in as a program manager, you're coming in as a program lead or whatever it might be, but you can step into that role. Yeah, don't be intimidated by it. I mean, my undergrad degree was in natural science uh, and environmental studies, and my graduate degree was in youth development leadership. So I have no college degrees associated with data or statistics or anything like that. I eventually got my Salesforce certification after spending lots of time doing it. But but yeah, really, anybody can do data. Um, anybody can get good at it. It's the whole growth mindset, right? You spend more time doing it, you get better at it. And so, yeah, if you have somebody in your organization with a dedicated, not a full-time role, most likely at most organizations, but somebody who has a percentage of their time dedicated to being the data captain, they can get really good at it, even if it's something that wasn't part of their original um, sort of career trajectory. I love that. So important. So, well, thank you so much for spending time sharing your thoughts and wisdom about this. It's always a joy for me to meet you know, another mompreneur and especially one in the data space and in the nonprofit space. So thank you so much for all of your work supporting nonprofits in data and for sharing your experience and a vision of hope that we can all get there too. Absolutely. Well, it's my my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and, and for doing this work. That was Jennifer Otremba and her chocolate chip logic model to data model story. To recap, The idea that you're looking here is that a logic model covers the inputs, activities, outputs, and outcomes of your organization. And once you have taken the time to map the most critical elements of each of those four phases, you then become quite clear on what parts of that then need data for you to monitor or to make changes about in order to achieve the most of the outcomes that you can. I was very taken with her idea of the captain of data role. And just like Jennifer said that she accidentaled her way into data, this captain of data role does not have to be somebody who has some PhD in statistics or is, you know, a classic data scientist. This role can be taken on by somebody who believes in the power of data and analytics to do more good in our communities. And you can learn the skills necessary to make your way through the data that you need. And as you build out this logic model, you really can focus on the few pieces that are going to be most impactful. And as you lay out this logic model and map it to your data model, you'll start to realize as well how many things you don't have to measure. So rather than being overwhelming, I hope that Jennifer's model helps you actually feel clearer about the things that really do matter and that you can let go of the rest without worry. So thank you so much for joining us. Again, if you want to see any of the show notes, a few of our summaries about these episodes, you can go to heartsouldata.com. All of the episodes are available there. This was episode 37. So you can find the show notes at heartsouldata.com slash EP hyphen 37. I'm Alexandra Mannerings. You have been listening to our podcast, Heart, Soul, and Data. May you go forth breathe, and seek truth. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanus, 
an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at Maracanos.com. M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.